You're listening to Season 9 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 9.14, Legendary Tale of the Epic Saga, Chapter 1. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a longtime dark spirit, reanimated by a sorcerer and motivated by my resentment toward the Gundam clan. And I'm Mia, and I know we aren't quite there yet, but I am so excited to be starting a longer series soon. It will be much easier to stay in any kind of work rhythm. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 714 paying subscribers. Thank you all for keeping us genki, and special thanks to our newest subscribers. Lufty, PG, Krusty Kamikaze, Brandon, Brooke, Quantomios, Frank P, Joseph F, Jopo Kono, and Jeremy J. You keep us genki. Special thanks to Christopher for the tea from our wishlist and to patron Delayed on MTA for the postcard. We love to get snail mail. The day has finally come, folks. The MSB 5th anniversary pin promotion is here. This year's is coinciding with the 5th anniversary of us launching our Patreon page rather than the 5th anniversary of our first episode, but an anniversary is an anniversary, right? As a thank you to the patrons who keep MSB going and to celebrate another year of Gundam podcasting, we have a special limited edition enamel pin made, and every patron who meets the requirements at the end of the promotional period receives one. What are the requirements, you ask? Be an MSB patron, subscribed on Patreon for $10 a month or more, or the equivalent annual subscription. In previous years, patrons only needed to pledge $5 a month, but our shipping and production costs have increased and we had to raise the cutoff point. However, if you are a legacy patron at the $5 level, you will still receive a pin. Knowing whether you are a legacy patron or not is easy. If your tier is Fra Bo, pins are a go. If your tier is Fra Kobayashi, no pin for thee. Oh, you used my rhyme. I did. I came up with the first half, but I needed Tom's help with the second half. Your subscription must be active and paid as of 11.59 p.m. New York time, Sunday, January 15th, 2024. And that's it. For current patrons, please take a few minutes to be sure that your shipping address on Patreon is up to date. But wait, there is, in fact, more. Since five years feels like such an important milestone, we have extra goodies this year. In addition to the pin, all eligible patrons will receive an MSB lanyard, great for convention badges or work IDs, and $25 patrons will receive an MSB mini pennant. I don't know if that term is used outside the U.S. They are little, like, triangle-shaped felt flags. They look cool. We designed an MSB one. It's great. You can put your pins on it. Pictures of the pin, lanyard, and pennant are on our Patreon and will be on our socials. The 
This week we're covering the first half of the third and main section of ST Gundam Matsuri. This third section, ST Gundam Gaiden Seikihei Monogatari, has a runtime of 54 minutes, which works out to just about exactly the length of two standard TV anime episodes. It is structured accordingly, with a title card appearing in the middle of the film to announce the beginning of part two, and hence our decision to cover the two episodes separately. Seikihei Monogatari is the successor to the SD Gundam Gaiden OVA miniseries from 1990, and like SD Command War Chronicle Gundam Force Super G Arms Final Formula vs. Normgather and SD Sengokuden Tenka Taiheihen, it is based on a long-running manga, serialized in Comic Bonbon magazine. The larger Night Gundam series ran from 1989 until 1998, and has been revived periodically since. Seikihei Monogatari, published in 1992, is the third arc of the series. The introductory narration at the start of the film references the events of both the first arc, previously adapted for the Gaiden OVA series, as well as the second Knights of the Round Table arc, which has not been adapted to animation. I should note that while I've focused on the SD Gundam manga as the source material, it would actually be more accurate to think of all three of these SD Gundam series, that's Musha, G-Arms, and Night Gundam, as multimedia collaborations which are primarily driven by the Cardass collectible trading cards. Each new year brings out a new set of cards, introducing new characters and changes in the world setting that would then be reflected in the manga, anime, and video game adaptations. Monogatari is usually translated as tale, so the key part of the title is the compound word Sei-Kihei. Sei means sacred, holy, or pure, and is also used as the prefix to indicate that someone is a saint. Kihei is an unusual compound, which combines the character ki, meaning machine, power, or opportunity, with the character hei, for soldier, army, warfare, or strategy. If written in the opposite order, they become a medieval way to write the word heiki, meaning weapons, or the art of warfare. Kihei, then, can be read as machine soldier. In context, it describes the gigantic medieval mobile suits piloted by the living mobile suits of this SD world. I'm not sure whether Kihei as a term for mecha was actually invented for SD Gundam Gaiden, but I do know that it was recently adopted by the 2019 video game Jusan Kihei Boeken, known in English as 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim. The key for machine and hei for soldier are both used in the term for mechanized infantry, kikai kahohei, and one of the words for cavalry is also pronounced kihei, but it's written with a different character for ki. In the SD Gundam Gaiden context, kihei may also be meant to evoke the word for a knight, kishi. There is, as far as I'm aware, no official translation of kihei as of this writing. The fan translation group Inca Subs elected to render it as Mecha Knight, and for simplicity's sake, we will do the same. SD Gundam Gaiden The Tale of the Holy Mecha Knight was written, directed, and storyboarded by SD Gundam mainstay Amino Tetsuro. Takamatsu Shinji, who had been the assistant director for most of SD Gundam and all of the SD Gundam Gaiden OVA miniseries, was not involved probably because by this point he had been promoted to Chief Director of Yusha Tokyu Maito Gain, or Brave Express Might Gain, 
the fourth entry in Sunrise's blockbuster Brave franchise, which he would continue to oversee until 1995. Instead, Amino was assisted by Dokite Tsukasa, character designer for the Dirty Pair anime. This is Dokite's first time working on Gundam, but he has remained involved since, contributing as an animator or director for everything from Gundam Wing to the recent Kukuru's Doan's Island movie. Notably, he was the animation director for the first episode of Turn A Gundam, and he drew the ending animation for the final core. He has also worked for most of the biggest names in mecha anime, as an animator or animation director on Yasuhiko Yoshikazu's Arion, Giant Gorg, and Venus Wars, as an animator for Oshii Mamoru's Pat Labor 2, and as the director of the first ending animation for Takahashi Ryosuke's Gasaraki. The sound director was Chiba Koichi, who is generally better known for his voice acting career, which spanned the whole history of TV anime from an understudy role on Astro Boy up until his death in 2001. Among his many noteworthy contributions, he was the sound director for much of the Brave series and served as the narrator for the SD Sengoku shorts, including in Tenka Taiheihen earlier this season. The music was by Okada Toru, who also provided the music for the previous SD Gundam Gaiden OVAs and many of the later SD Gundam shorts. Nina will have more information about him after the talkback. The otherworldly background art was by Kusamori Shuichi, working under the pseudonym Hirata Shuichi. Besides SD Gundam, he was also a background artist on Grave of the Fireflies, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, The Five Star Stories, Ghost in the Shell, Pat Labor 1 and 2, Metropolis, and Magnetic Rose. He was also the art director on Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, which, whatever else you might think of it, did have some incredible backgrounds. Next week, I'll talk about the film's equally impressive voice cast. For now, it's time for the recap. Despite the heroic sacrifice made by Night Gundam and his companions to defeat Dark Emperor Zeon at the end of ST Gundam Gaiden, the Suda Doaka world remains trapped in an age of darkness. Wherever you turn, the forces of evil and the descendants of the Gundam clan are locked in battle. Night hangs over the small and remote kingdom of Dabad. The ground trembles, and a sound like distant thunder wakes the villagers from their beds. Two young women dart between the houses pursued by gigantic machines taller than the rooftops. A pair of mecha knights. Their pilots, soldiers of Neo-Zeon. The mecha knights rampage through the village, smashing buildings with ease. The village militia are no match for them, and Seabook, a local boy wearing the village's sacred armor, arrives too late to do any good. One mecha knight scoops up the younger of the fleeing women, and they withdraw with their prize. The girl, overcome by fright, falls limp in the fist of the Mecha Knight. As she drifts in and out of consciousness, she murmurs part of an ancient mystic phrase that triggers a momentary reaction within Seabook's holy armor. Alone, he pursues the Mecha Knights. The villagers report the incident to a pair of royal knights, Gundam's GP-01 and GP-02. As they wonder what could have brought Neo-Zeon Mecha Knights all the way out to this remote village, the kidnapped woman's companion emerges from the anxious crowd and explains that she had been an aide to Bera Rona, princess of Neo-Zeon. 
They fled their country because they disagreed with its evil ways. But Neozion could not allow them to escape, for the princess knows the secret phrase to activate the holy Mechanite entombed in the nearby Valley of Kings. Alarmed, the two royal knights gather what soldiers they can muster from the village and set off for the valley at once. Zero One and Zero Two cut their way through the guards outside the tomb, but SD knights are no match for the Neozeon Mecha Knights. As the battle rages, Seabook emerges, darts from the shadows to rescue Bera. In a daze, she repeats the phrase from before, this time reciting what sounds like a prophecy. An orb of golden light embraces them, and Seabook's panoply transforms into the activation key for the Holy Mechanite. Knight GP02 quickly boards it. In the darkness of the cockpit, cables latch onto his body like lampreys. Those outside can hear the knight cry out in pain as holy energy burns through his body. The machine seems to reject him. At 02's urging, 01 boards the Mechanite, and despite the pain, he is able to make the holy machine stand. Without entirely knowing what he is doing, Zero One is somehow able to summon forth a dragon of golden energy that banishes Neozeon's horde of monsters, damages their Mechanites, and forces them to withdraw in disarray, abandoning both the Holy Mechanite and the runaway princess. But before they can decide what to do with the Holy Mechanite, the Neozeon attack on Dabad begins in earnest. Queen Nina leads the bulk of her army to meet the invaders in battle bringing along 01, 02, and the new Holy Mechanite, leaving only a token force to guard the castle. Their spirits are high, all save 02, who seems to resent 01's status as chosen pilot. They find the Neozeon forces pillaging a Dabatan town, but as soon as the relief force appears, the raiders withdraw. While GP02 and his squad pursue one group, the rest of the Dabad army, including 01 and Queen Nina, are drawn into an ambush. Neozeon troops, led by the reanimated ghost of Knight Zenon Mansa, one of Dark Emperor Zeon's most powerful lieutenants, surround them. Zero One, unable to draw out the Holy Mechanite's true power, is no match for Mansa, and the beleaguered Dabadans can do no more than form ranks and try to hold the line. But as Mansa prepares to destroy the Holy Mechanite and its Gundam pilot, a mystic tablet appears before Zero One's eyes. Reading the sacred words contained therein triggers a reaction back in the Valley of Kings and summons forth the divine messenger Jigriff. Under the benevolent gaze of Jigriff, the Holy Mechanite's armor cracks and shatters, revealing the sacred machine's true form and its true power. It takes only moments for Zero One to dispatch Zenon Mansa, and with their champion felled, the Neozeon forces retreat, this time for real. The thrill of victory is short-lived. A desperate messenger arrives to inform the Dabatan army that the castle has fallen while they were away. They race home to find the sky red and choked with smoke from the burning city. To make matters worse, the agents of Neozeon have discovered a second holy mechanite buried underground. With it, no one will be able to stand in their way. It is not all bad news. Though they arrived too late to prevent the destruction of the capital, the famous Knight Amaro has arrived with a small force of Lacroan soldiers to aid Dabad in its time of need. But what of Knight GP02? He wanders alone in an endless desert under the light of three moons, his eyes bloodshot. On his arm he carries a cursed shield, and his heart is consumed by jealousy. 
His intentions remain a mystery as the light fades. Objectivity is a lie, and objectivity in media criticism is a filthy lie, but I still feel obliged to say that there is no way I can be objective about this short, because the very concept of medieval mecca makes me go absolutely feral. <laughs> this was made for me, and its actual quality is kind of irrelevant to my experience of this short. Well, then it's a good thing we have me. Truly, that is your role on this podcast, to uh, bring some semblance of uh, rationality and objectivity while I'm just over here, like... Hooting, hollering, stamping your feet. <laughs> exactly. By objectivity, he means rain on his parade. That's usually what people mean. <laughs> That's my subjective experience of your objectivity, yeah. Yeah, this SD short answering some long, closely held questions, like... What if Char were in Stardust Memory and F91? <laughs> what if we just straight up combined Stardust Memory and F91, but also the mobile suits were alive and they piloted even bigger mobile suits, and also it was in a high fantasy setting? <laughs> yeah, this one uses characters and mobile suits from F91 and 0083, but not really taking any elements from the story. I mean, this is not like when, you know, they just do like jokey recreations of scenes from the original show back in those earlier SDs. Like the only aspects of 0083 that are really preserved in this short is what appears to be a setup for the GP02 knight to turn evil and turn against all of his friends, just as the unit two from 0083 was captured and turned against the other, uh, the other Gundam. And there's some, like, Bera Rona fleeing from her family and then being recaptured by her brother. Like, that's taken from F91 and applied here to this medieval fantasy setting, but not really any of the other aspects of those stories. My theory is that it's not really meant to, <laughs> other than the fan service of, you know, spot a face in the crowd or spot a mobile suit in the crowd and go, hey, I know who that is. I know what that is. It's not really meant to evoke those other stories. What it evokes is a kid playing with all of their toys at once. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have vague memories of, you know, my bunny stuffed animals and some action figures from the Disney Aladdin movie and also some Lego sets that I had built, and my brother's tub toys that were sea creatures and also our plastic dinosaurs. And obviously you're playing with all, <laughs> somehow you're combining all of these into one epic story. And if you're a kid and you are really into knights and dragons and fantasy stories of that kind, well, yeah, all of your mobile suit toys or maybe the ones you got from your older brother or something, those are going to become knights and dragons and princesses and all the rest. And you may know their names because they have names from whatever series they're from, but you aren't necessarily familiar with their source material. And even if you are, it's not strictly relevant to mm -hmm, how you play. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, you noticed um, towards the end of this short, there's a mobile suit that appears riding on a dinosaur. 
a robo dinosaur, excuse <laughs> me, not just any dinosaur. Well, regular Mobile Suit Gundam, real Gundam, and I use that term because that's actually the term that was being used inside the Sunrise offices at this point to distinguish SD Gundam from the rest of the franchise. There are no dinosaurs in real Gundam. So I think that idea of just a kid playing with all of their toys and they've got dinosaur toys, so put the mobile suit on the dinosaurs. Because why wouldn't you? I can't imagine why you wouldn't do that. Fun note about that character, by the way, the mobile suit riding the dinosaur is not a Gundam. It is merely wearing a Gundam mask. <laughs> it's a gym. In fact, that's Jim Henson Jr. Oh. From the earlier SD Gundam Gaiden shorts. That's the little kid of the Jim family that is constantly in peril, grown up wearing a Gundam mask and riding on a dinosaur. And his, uh, I guess, code name, nom de guerre, nom de knight, whatever, nom de chevalier, is Indie Gundam. <laughs> Probably because he's wearing the Indiana Jones hat. Nice. It's not too much of a spoiler to say that in a couple of years, the Gundam franchise is going to shift its focus from the Universal Century to all of these alternate universes, to a succession of different takes on the Gundam story in completely different settings, more or less disconnected from each other. But the groundwork for that is being laid right now with all of these SD Gundam shorts, because what they are doing is establishing that Gundam is not a single storyline progressing through a single fictional universe. It's not Star Wars, it's not Star Trek. Gundam is a set of visual signifiers. Gundam is a broad set of storytelling themes that can then be expressed in all of these different worlds that Gundam in the Sengoku era, Gundam in this medieval fantasy world, Gundam in the like knights and commandos militaria thing from the Super G Arms series. All of these are Gundam, and what unifies them is a kind of nebulous spirit of Gundamness. And with that established, it then becomes possible, even for real Gundam, to expand beyond the limits of its original conception. So while these are kind of silly and obscure and easily forgotten and you don't have to watch them, the work that they're doing for the Gundam franchise is incredibly important, and their influence on Gundam is astronomical. A lot of things about this short really exemplify high fantasy for me, that they were really going for that high fantasy genre, high fantasy structure, not just the aesthetic signifiers, the castles and the knights, but a truly vast number of characters to keep track of, like named characters who have a significant role in the story. All of these different kingdoms spread across a pretty vast geographic area. These are the kinds of things I associate with fantasy epics. <laughs> and the way all of the kingdoms are actually like very small, sort of one, one castle town and its surrounding villages constitutes a kingdom. And it has maybe a dozen knights and a few hundred men at arms constituting its entire forces. That scale feels like something out of fairy tales. And although they begin the story with this little recap of what's going on in SD Gundam Gaiden, which I very much appreciated, it's kind of not enough, <laughs> it, or it, it feels like enough when you go into the story, but as the story progresses, so many different 
people and factions get named, that little recap at the beginning ends up feeling a little deceptive on a second or third <laughs> watch through of the short because that recap feels like an attempt to help people who don't necessarily follow SD Gundam catch up with what's relevant to this story so that they can engage with it. But then by the end of it, there's so much happening, so many characters, so many people and factions and events that are not explained that it really feels like this is a condensed retelling of something that happened in a manga. And <laughs> you're not wrong about that. This is a condensed retelling of something that happened in a manga. Like the other two pieces of this SD Matsuri movie, it is a continuation of stuff we saw before, but that they have skipped a chapter. That intro, you called it deceptive and unhelpful, and it is definitely both of those things because it's not really about what's happening here. The only thing in that intro that is actually important and relevant to the story that we then watch is there's a new evil faction in the shadows. And yeah, we could have guessed there was a new evil faction in the shadows. There's always a new evil faction in the shadows. That's how evil factions work. Right. It explains how they began the SD Gundam Gaiden story, world, series, whatever you want to call it. But because it doesn't link directly to these events and a bunch of the, the characters and factions it names don't even crop up until the very end of this first half of the short. Some of them don't at all, like the Kingdom of Britis and the Knights of the Round Table. I was curious. It might just be that my ear is off, but I could have sworn they were saying grips. I thought it sounded more like grips <laughs> than Britis, but maybe it is Britis. I think it's supposed to be Britis. Okay. They also mention a Zabylonian empire, but mm -hmm. then never mention that again. After that, it's always Neo-Zeon. Yeah. So, the, I mean, <laughs> Princess Bera. I, yeah, I'm actually, I'm not going to try to explain this. I don't, <laughs> I don't fully understand the relationships between the Zabylonian empire and Neo-Zeon in this context. The previous two shorts, the Penalty Kick Oldies Rock Opera one and the fourth Great Shogun Needs to Get Married one, both of those, they choose to take small little, basically standalone stories and adapt those. And you don't need a ton of context to get those. So they work, I think, a little bit better than this one, which is really trying to do quite a grand epic story, but at such a breakneck pace that they can't really do it properly. I mean, the opening section, the rebel princess, the runaway princess arrives in a border town. She's followed by soldiers who kidnap her while attacking the town. The local hero goes to rescue her and they discover an ancient holy artifact, the Mecha Knight buried in this Valley of the Kings. It rejects the first pilot and then accepts the second one, big climactic battle. The second hero has to overcome his self-doubt in order to be able to use the Mecha Knight. All of that. Oh, so I don't need to do a recap then. There was our recap. Hey, you're welcome. All of that takes 12 minutes in the course of the show and could easily be two, three, maybe four episodes worth of content. They continue at this pace throughout the rest of it, doing what I think of as an episode's worth of content every six minutes or so. So really, they're doing these like at four times the recommended speed. And it is, it is hard to keep up sometimes. 
While there are a lot of things about how this short was made that I enjoy, I think some of that sense of it being hard to follow what's happening is the editing. There are parts of it that are badly edited, to my mind. The scene that stood out as particularly confusing for me was when the GPO 1 and 2 first arrive at the village of Rugash. They're questioning the villagers. They're trying to find out what's happened. Matilda comes up to explain what she and Cecily were doing there. After she mentions the Holy Mechanites, it cuts to the Valley of the Kings, which I assume is a reference to the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. And then there's a shot of the GPO 1 and 2 that makes it look as though they had followed the enemies to the Valley of the Kings already, but then it cuts back to them still in the village, surrounded by villagers, talking about what they should do next. So it seems that that shot of just the two of them is meant to show them still in the village, but because of the angle of the shot, because there's no one else in it, it creates this sense of confusion. The background doesn't tell us where they are, and so the fact that it's coming right after we see these big unholy Mechanites <laughs> march into the Valley of the Kings makes it seem like, oh, they have followed the enemy there. And then we cut back to the village and they're still in the village. And it was very confusing for me. And at first I thought maybe these were new or different mobile suits. Like it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, we see Seabook leave the village pursuing them at night. Then later on, we see the GPO 1 and 2 with their you know, men-at-arms with their peasant levies, whoever their, their assistants are, uh, go to the Valley of Kings, they fight a battle, they break through, and then Seabook is just there. Like, we can fill in what Seabook must have done in the interim, but it's not actually shown to us in any way or even hinted, and that's just not great filmmaking. There's a bunch of moments where they do a cut and the audio from the previous scene overlaps to the next scene, which is fine, except that the audio like doesn't have anything to do with the scene that they're cutting into or like when applied to it becomes confusing. Yeah, because usually when that's done, it's meant to imply some kind of continuity of space or narrative. Like it it connects those scenes even though there's been a cut. Mm -hmm. And so if the underlying connection's not apparent, that can create some additional confusion. Because sometimes that having sound carry over can be a really effective and Absolutely. cool technique. I mean, every every cut is done for a purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that purpose is to create meaning, and sometimes the purpose is, we don't have any time, we need to keep moving the story forward. A lot of stuff that would fill in and make it make sense visually and logically, and that would just make it more enjoyable to watch, is not there because the pacing is so fast which I guess means it's actually more similar to F91 than I would have thought. Kind of a sidebar question. I was trying to remember, is this the first SD Gundam animated thing that we've watched wherein the mecha people pilot even bigger mecha? Not exactly, because if you remember in- I don't. <laughs> Picuria Porentis. Which oh, you, which you love right. so much. The little blobby guys. The at one point, the little blobby guys pilot a bigger blobby guy. All right. Yeah, I really feel like I ought to come up with a tongue twister about how meta it is for Mecha to pilot Mega Mecha. <laughs> but I don't quite have it. I don't quite have it figured out. 
I actually find the introduction of the Mechanites in this context to be incredibly funny because you have this new branch that comes off of the Gundam tree and it's SD Gundam. And the whole idea is the mobile suits are turned into characters, autonomous, living, breathing, humanish characters with their own personalities. And then the power of Mecha is so strong. The pull, the appeal of Mecha is so strong that they then have to invent Mecha for the SD Gundams to pilot. Another thing that was confusing for me, uh, Cecily's brother refers to, I think, all of the Mega Mecha as Mecha Knights. But then the Holy Mecha Knights are a separate, different, special thing. Well, yeah, they're holy. <sighs> Having complained about some of the visual confusion in this uh, short, I do feel obliged to mention some of the visual things that I liked. The watercolor stills that they used for the intro I thought were quite beautiful, quite striking. When the GPO 1 and 2 arrive in the Valley of the Kings and head into this particular cave, passage, whatever, the uh, quote-unquote camera work wherein they are followed as they go across these sort of stone catwalks and further down, it sort of feels like the camera is rotating from above to the side to facing downwards. It felt quite uh, quite neat. I liked it. It was different. It was interesting. I am excited for you to watch the second half of this next week because there's some really cool camera work in that one. And I think you're going to love it. I, honestly, this is like there are some elements of the visual design, especially for some of the knights that feel too complicated. But the visuals in general for this episode are really good. Like you said, the watercolors at the beginning, which depict the history of the Suda Doaka world and the Knights of the Round Table, who I understand they're there because the, like that manga was very popular. They were fan favorites, but those designs were too complicated to animate. <laughs> and so there's a claim. I don't know if this is true. It's like an unsourced quotation on Japanese Wikipedia. There is a claim that at some point there was a plan or a, a proposal to turn the Knights of the Round Table part of this story into a series of OVAs like the earlier SD Gundam Guide and OVAs, but that the animators decided it would be way too much work because the designs were too complicated. And so I suspect they're there at the beginning as fan service so that fans of that section of the manga can be like, oh, there's my favorite guy. There's my little Blorbo. A lot of the backgrounds are gorgeous and they're doing some like kind of weird high fantasy stuff. The fact that this world has three different moons, a lot of it looks like the kind of art you would find on the cover of a pulpy late 70s, early 80s sci-fi or fantasy novel. I didn't mind their use of stills in the attack on the second village. The one that Queen Nina and her troops go to defend. <laughs> I thought those were actually quite well used, well done. I noticed a lot of stuff with the music and the sound design that I liked. The uh, trumpety theme that plays at the beginning, we've heard used in Gaiden before. It provides that sense of continuity. But then at the very beginning, when the first Mecha Knight shows up to attack this little village... There's like an electric guitar riff that starts playing. Yeah. And later on, there's like highly synthesized rock music that 
I'm going to say absolutely rules, especially in context. There is also the very uplifting, yeah, hero music that comes on when the GPO-1 figures out how to like summon the shield and sword for the Holy Mecha Knight. It's a great little tune, and they've used it before. That's another one that they've used in previous SD Gundam Gaiden. So again, there's that sense of continuity in the music. But I really enjoy that little tune. I also noticed it's not super prominent throughout the short, but there are moments where they pay special attention to the noise that the the little mechs, the humanish mechs, make as they move. And it sounds sort of vaguely hydraulic and vaguely metallic and heavy. And I think that's great. I think it's really cool that they made a point of making them sound different as they move. Their footfalls are different. The other noise they make is different than the human characters, which is as it should be. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know you loved the the ball dogs. And I know you especially loved the Haro pigeon Haro that they send pigeon. as a messenger. I need to get some Haro pla and make a Haro pigeon <laughs> or a whole flock of Haro pigeons. <laughs> Although I am glad you brought up both of those because they tie into one of the things that I thought didn't really work oh, in no. this short. Well, the tone of most of it is more serious. SD Gundam does a lot of comedy, a lot of slapstick, but there are some SD storylines that are not comedies, and this one's not. But because it's not, and because they are fitting so much into so little time, the comedy moments that they did include didn't really work for me. Mm. You know, Cecily and Matilda running from this Mecha Knight, and then the Mecha Knight sort of slices across a house, and we see a person studying at a desk look up like, uh? and the cat in the attic like, uh? and it's like, well, but she's still running and screaming, and everybody's still having their village destroyed. Like, uh, this is not really... And then at the very end, the castle's been burnt down, but they're fighting those ninja and somebody messes with one of their Mecha Knights and it pops apart like a Rock'em Sock'em robot. It's like all on springs mm -hmm. and with a funny sound effect. And it's like, okay, that's kind of funny, but like... The, the, the tone is a little like, are we doing a funny slapstick or is the capital of the kingdom burning to ashes in the background? It's not that they can't put humorous moments in a serious story. I feel like we've had this discussion before. It's harder to make the comedy work, especially if you're rushed for time. And I uh, don't really feel like they pulled it off in this one. Similar moment, both in that it feels like maybe it's supposed to be a little funny and it didn't work for me. And also it's absolutely a reference to something from one of the comics and so falls completely flat for someone who hasn't seen the comics. But when... Knight Red Warrior R shows up and it's like, I'm sorry, I came all the way from another place you've never heard of <laughs> and appears with like a trumpet fanfare and gets the whole frame of roses around him and both Nina and Mora gazing lovingly, eyes shining. I'm like, okay, one more character I don't know anything about. Super. <laughs> You're right that Red Warrior R is uh, from the manga and uh, a fan favorite. 
The Red Warrior Gundam is actually from Plamo Kyoshiro, one of those really early manga. It was then reimagined for a successor to Plamo Kyoshiro, which was called Hyper Warrior Gundam Boy. And then from that, it was adapted into the Gundam Gaiden series. He's a bard. I just meant that him being so dreamy must be previously established somewhere <laughs> if they're going to then give him the roses. Well, he's, you know, shiny and gold and from overseas or at least another country. So mysterious and romantic. If you'll allow me for a moment to indulge in a little bit of speculation. As I was watching this, I detected some very suspicious similarities between the story here and the greatest anime series ever made, The Vision of Escaflone, <laughs> which came out in 1996. And these include the um, ancient, legendary, holy mecca that is hidden away in a, you know, in a shrine, in a sanctum that needs to be reactivated by the hero, and it chooses its pilot, the attack by the enemy that destroys the capital in the course of all of this. The young woman who is somehow the key to unlocking the power of these ancient holy mecca. Who needs to like participate in the activation ritual and then the scene at the end where the evil side is like excavating resembles very closely one of the earlier escaflone episodes where the zybok empire is excavating a dragon graveyard to pull out the drag energist crystals from the dragon's hearts and then some aspects of it are actually more similar to the Escaflone movie, which came out in 2000. And those include, this is hinted at by the activation words that Princess Bera has to say, but that there are two Mecha Knights and that they are like destined to clash with each other. That's from the Escaflone movie. And also the way all of the like cables come out and do a kind of body horror thing where they connect to the different parts of the mobile suit that's piloting it. And it's obviously painful. Exactly. And then the pilot feels what the, the Mecha Knight feels. That's very similar to uh, the way it is in the movie. And that sense of like feeling what the Mecha feels, that's in the original show. So there's quite a few similarities here. And I happen to know that the original pitch for Escaflone was made in 1990 and that the original plan was for it to go on air in 1994, but that it was delayed for various reasons that we'll get into later because they are related to Gundam. So Escaflone was being planned at sunrise at the same time that this manga and anime were being made. And there's even a little bit of crossover among the staff. So this is just speculating. I don't have evidence, but I do think that the connection between the two of them is not merely coincidental. I think some of the same ideas by some of the same people made their way into both works independently. Escaflone, by the way, the show that made me an anime fan, and which is in various different ways, some of which you will definitely not be able to guess, responsible for the existence of this podcast. Ha. I just figured out what you, you meant. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, there it they is. They don't. No, and they never will. <laughs> Took me a moment, though, to figure out what you were talking about feel a little bad admitting this. I come into a lot of these SDs with some prejudice against them and some assumption that they are a bit more cut rate, much lower budgets, poorer staffing, having to be constructed in a way that makes them easier and cheaper to produce. 
But I couldn't help but wonder when the GPO-1 and GPO-2 first arrive at the Valley of Kings and they're fighting this flood of monsters that flows by them, all of the monsters kind of dissipate like smoke. And I really wasn't sure if they were meant to be ghosts. The monsters are ghosts. They can still hurt you, but when you cut them up, they just sort of disappear like mist rather than breaking up into pieces or exploding or lighting on fire or whatever. Or if this was just meant to be like an easier way of animating <laughs> that fight so that they didn't have to animate sword cuts and fire and explosions. There are enemy mobile suits who are actually like... Corporeal. Just, yeah, just like the mobile suits and humans from the uh, the good guy side, there are also evil ones. But yeah, I think they are augmented by a bunch of these like goblin creatures that are, let's say, condensed evil energy. And they bring the Quinn Mansa back, resurrect it from the grave. The Xenon Mansa? The ghost knight? Yeah, the ghost knight, which was the coolest looking out of all of the villains from the original SD Gundam Gaiden Quartet. Good poll bringing that one back. So we know that they have this power to like resurrect ghosts and arm them and send them into battle. And it's probably something similar to that for most of these monster creatures. There are so many bits in this that do feel rushed, that do feel like they could have done better. And so I really want to call out what I think is one of the best executed sequences. And it's when um, Quattro appears to confront Seabook and Bera while they're looking at these ancient tablets before Which the appearance of the G-Griff. The tablets, have to point out, are color-coded to old school granddaddy Gundam colors. <laughs> Yellow, red, and blue. Yep. When Quattro first appears and starts talking to them and doing his like evil villain monologue thing, they actually give us the little detail of Seabook like, sneaking the wrench casually out of the, the pouch of tools so that he can hold it in his hand. And then they give us the like correct amount of time. There's a cut to another scene and they come back. And then we see Seabook actually try to clock Quattro with the wrench. Gosh, I love how bad Seabook is. <laughs> and Quattro just like casually dancing out of the way and then without any effort at all tripping him. I also appreciated... More than most of the other characters in this short who are from other series, this feels like a version of Quattro. It's not just named Quattro. He doesn't just look like Quattro. His kind of snide comment at Cecily Barra that like, oh, that's very undignified behavior for a princess or like a princess shouldn't act like that. That feels like something Quattro would say. Absolutely. I don't know if this is supposed to be the same guy who was Shar back in SD Gundam Gaiden, like Catboy Shar. Mm. Like, did he grow up and become this Quattro or is this a totally different guy? Did he remove the cat curse? Because we know not that much time has passed because Amaro is still around in the Lacroan kingdom. Well, they said seven years? Seven years since the fall of the kingdom of Britus, an event that has nothing to do with what we saw in Super. Gaiden. Love it. Yeah, similarly, <laughs> they name drop several other mobile suits at other points in this short, and they're mobile suits that don't appear. Like when Quattro first shows up at the Mecha Knight storage, <laughs> I don't know what to call it when it's not a hanger, um, <laughs> to, to pick one up. And the he asks about one first, 
and then is told, oh no, take this one instead. So he just like name drops a random mobile suit for no apparent reason and then goes on. And then later the various references to, oh, the GPO-3 is away. Oh, we should have waited for the GPO-3. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it will appear next week. Maybe. Look forward to it. And now Nina's research, profiling composer Okada Toru. Before I start talking about Okada Toru, I wanted to talk a little bit about our process and how sometimes we have a research idea that we aren't really able to make work on an episode. My first idea for research this week did not pan out at all. I was struck by the short's use of the term Valley of the Kings as the name for the ancient temple cave thing that housed the holy mechanite and the associated tablets and wondered if this had anything to do with the famous grave complex the valley of the kings in egypt it is at least a reference to it at one point in the short they call it oke no tani which is exactly how valley of the kings is translated into japanese and as far as i can tell is not used to reference any other archaeological sites just that one in egypt I wondered if maybe there had been some recent exciting discoveries at the site that might have sparked public interest in ancient Egypt. And then Tom remembered that while researching live-action tokusatsu shows for an earlier SD Gundam short, he had encountered one called Fushigi Shoujo Nairu na Totomesu, or Mysterious Nile Girl Tutmos, a toy action comedy from the early 1990s. A fan page references a Tutankhamun boom in Japan at that time, and there are plenty of examples of ancient Egypt influencing Japanese pop culture. Yu-Gi-Oh!, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Beyblade, Dragon Ball, and plenty more. But my efforts at verification were in vain. I couldn't find a single newspaper article, book chapter, or academic paper discussing an 80s or 90s Tutankhamun boom or what we in the English-speaking world might have called Egyptomania in Japan. There is a small museum dedicated to ancient Egyptian artifacts and archaeology located in Shibuya, Tokyo, but I couldn't find out when it was established. An exhibition of artifacts from Tutankhamun's tomb was extremely popular in Japan. It was visited by nearly 3 million people. But that was back in 1965 and 66. And I found a fascinating article from 2019 by Hussein Basir, director of the Antiquities Museum of the Biblioteca Alexandrina, where he discusses the beginnings of Egyptology in Japan, Japanese-led archaeological projects and digs, and the Egyptomania spurred by the Tutankhamun exhibit, in particular the flood of popular books, articles, movies, and TV documentaries about ancient Egypt at that time. But then he jumps ahead to the early 2000s, making it difficult to draw the connection between that period of popular interest in the 60s and the year of this SD Shorts release. Although it just occurred to me as you were listing off all of those examples, you know, the giant robo in Giant Robo has like a pharaoh's headdress mm -hmm. kind of thing. Giant Robo, the manga, originally from 1967. Oh! Giant Robo, the anime from the early 90s. Well, well. I've connected the links. <laughs> it's 
it's all giant robos all the way down. I absolutely think there's something there, but confirming it and finding the evidence and fleshing out the details would take more research and more time than we can manage while we're producing the podcast. Honestly, Egyptomania in 1990s Japan, its origins and its effects on popular culture sounds like a thesis project. So uh, free thesis project idea for anyone who's interested. Free? Yeah, we need to monetize this podcast. You want to write your thesis on that? You got to pay us. Luckily, that wasn't the only thing about this episode that piqued our curiosity. As Tom mentioned about the production staff, the composer for this episode was Okada Toru. Yes, that Okada Toru, the one who famously composed the sound that accompanies PlayStation's logo in all of its ads, and who sadly passed away this past February. And as it happens, this short isn't his only Gundam credit, so it's time for a profile. Who was Okada Toru? Born in Tokyo on April 23, 1949, his father, Okada Minoru, was a sports announcer, known for live commentary on NHK, where he covered professional baseball, rugby, tennis, pro sumo, and Olympic sports. He was also, for a few years in the 1950s, one of the Japanese-language announcers for the U.S. state-owned news company and international radio broadcaster Voice of America. Sadly, I wasn't able to find out much about Toru's early life. What I can say, based on the profiles, articles, and social media accounts, is that the man truly loved making music. Okara Toru was a musician. He played keyboards, piano, and accordion, a vocalist, a composer, an arranger, and a music producer. He graduated from Rikyo Daigaku, a private university in Tokyo, also known as St. Paul's. And then from 1973, when he was 23 or 24, until his death on February 14th of 2023, age 73, he was in bands and made music. The first band seems to have been Hachimitsu Pai, and when it disbanded, many of its members formed the band that Okada is most famously associated with, the rock band Moonriders. But he was also a member of the bands Amor, Life Goes On, Yatoi, CTO Lab, and Ukulenika. He released solo albums, produced songs for more than a dozen other artists, including Sai S, Princess Princess, Chirorin, and Hatsune Miku, and had numerous commercial credits in film, anime, and ads. In the U.S., Okada is best known for creating the sound that accompanies the Sony PlayStation's logo in their ads. But he also wrote music for Dokomo Dake, the mascot for Japanese telecom company NTT Dokomo, for the advertising for the PlayStation game Crash Bandicoot, and for the NHK TV program Tensai Bitokun. In live-action films, he has music credits on two Maeda Shiro works, the 2016 Fukigen na Kokyo, or My Sullen Past, and the 2013 Ji Extreme Sukiyaki, or The Extreme Sukiyaki for which Moonriders performed the theme song. In anime, his music credits include the 2006 OVA Pale Cocoon by Yoshiura Yasuhiro and Eve no Jikan, also known as Time of Eve or Are You Enjoying the Time of Eve, a Studio Rika web animation which later was recut and released to theaters in 2010. And in the same year that he composed the soundtrack for this SD Gundam short, he is also credited with the music for Original Dirty Pair, Flight 005 Conspiracy. That one caused me some confusion. Nozomi has posted the full animation on YouTube, 
but I didn't see Okada's name in the credits, or any music credits beyond the singer for the theme song and the record company. Thankfully, JASRAC, the Japanese Society for Rights of Authors, Composers, and Publishers, a nonprofit society for music copyright collection and administration, has a searchable online database, and I was able to confirm that he's credited as the author of many songs associated with that Dirty Pair animation. Why get hung up on this particular credit? Because it's another Sunrise project. In fact, as of Thursday, December 14th, 2023, Jazrak lists Okala Toru as the author of 518 songs, and 45 of those were for Sunrise. But other than this Dirty Pair animation and some compilation albums, all of the rest of his work for Sunrise was on SD Gundam. He's credited with music for Yume no Maronsha, Uchu no Tabi, the travel agency one, Pikirienta Poresu, the blobbies one, and for Paparu no Akatsuki, Dawn of Papal. He's credited as the arranger for the ending theme of Mark III, and the arranger and composer for the Mark IV theme song and the Dawn of Papal theme song. I won't list every last SD Gundam song credit, but I will link to the Jazzrack search results in the show notes. In bands, Okada sang only rarely, but was noted for his gravelly singing voice. Per the Japanese Wikipedia page, his bandmate, Suzuki Keiichi, was quoted to have said that Toru had to sing in a gravelly way, because if he sang normally, he sounded like an announcer. Okada is described as being a bit heartbroken over this comment, retorting that a beautiful singing voice wouldn't have worked with Moonrider's music anyway, and that his focus was on his own gravelly-voiced style and on electronically manipulated vocals and electronic music. The wiki gives the source for this anecdote as a special issue of Mujiku Magazine, music magazine, titled Moon Riders no Sanjunen, 30 Years of Moon Riders. Unfortunately, I was not able to get access to that special issue myself. Sidebar that this bandmate, Suzuki Keiji, has a music credit for the 1989 Famicom video game Mother, known as Earthbound Beginnings Outside Japan, and for the Kon Satoshi anime film, and my favorite Christmas movie of all time, Tokyo Godfathers. The Moonriders band is included in the music and music production credits for the film. Moonriders, as a band, were early adopters of a whole bunch of different music technology, including synthesizers, vocoders, and sequencers. And according to a June 1996 issue supplement for Kibodo Magazine, Keyboard Magazine, Okara Toru coined the use of the term uchikomi to refer to pre-programming a piece of music into a sequencer, drum machine, or the like for playback as part of a more complex track. Most of the time, all members of the band were involved in the songwriting, composing, arranging, performing, and producing, and would vote on what songs to include in their albums, although a zero-vote song wouldn't necessarily be excluded in the end. Uh, The Wikipedia page for the band also describes Moonwriters as not having a very distinct sound as a band, though it's unclear whose assessment that is. Munakata Akimasa, a music critic for Yahoo Japan, was a fan of theirs and wrote about them quite a bit. One of his articles about Moonriders described them as Japan's oldest rock band, with an average age of 70 in 2022, and still producing new music after coming out of a long hiatus. 
For Moonrider's 45th anniversary concert, June 12, 2021, Okada appeared on stage in a wheelchair just one day after being released from the hospital. In response to the warm applause of the crowd, Okada said, Jinse sairyo no hi This is the best day of my life. At the time of his death from heart failure in February of this year, Okada was focused on recovering and rehabilitating from a broken rib so that he could play at big festivals coming up in the summer. Even so, he played a concert at a small venue less than a month before, and in an interview joked with Munakata that he was just trying to stay active, otherwise he'd stop being able to move his fingers. Akimasa credits Okada for giving Moonriders its popness, sharpness, and progressiveness, and describes Okada as a kind, warm-hearted person who loved music and in recent years had especially enjoyed collaborating with younger artists in his numerous side projects. I spent a little time on his Instagram to get a better sense of Okada as a person. Interspersed with clips of him playing keyboards are pictures of musical instruments and studio equipment, selfies with bandmates and pop idols, and pictures of desk toys, retro rocket ships and planes, Tintin emerging from a vase, a stuffed bear wearing a headset. Quite a few of his albums are on Spotify, but not all listed under one artist, so it is a bit confusing. I will link in the show notes, though, and hope you'll take a few minutes to listen to some of his other work. Next time on episode 9.15, legendary tale of the epic saga chapter The Last, we'll research and discuss the second half of SD Gundam Gaiden Seikihei Monogatari and look back at SD Gundam Festival as a whole. Until then, stay Genki, folks. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music was Olivia by Heisen. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. To add one little minor Gundam connection that might be of interest to some of our listeners, early on in Hayashibara Megumi's singing career, he composed and arranged a couple of the songs that appeared on her early album, uh, Half and Half, in 1991. I wish I had been able to find more about his background, but it mostly just seemed like dude loved to make music by himself, with other people, (laughs) however, whenever, all the time. We should all be so lucky as to get to spend our lives doing something we love that much. And I quite enjoyed pictures of the band together, uh, mostly promo images and pictures of them on stage, but all uh, rather eccentrically stylish, as I guess you would expect of 70-year-old <laughs> Japanese rockers who've been doing this a while. If anyone has the right to be eccentrically stylish, it's aging rock stars. The 
uh, some of that will be more appropriate next week when we're actually like finishing SD for the foreseeable future. Uh-huh. Foreseeable future is the wrong term because I can foresee a whole lot of future. I know when we'll next be talking about SD, but it right. is way in the future. Because SD Gundam sort of comes off of real Gundam, like a vine, like a new branch, like a growth. I have to be a young, dumb, heartbroken anime fan. Post photos without comments, post photos with comments. Post photos without comments, but put comments in the alt text because that increases discoverability without uh, hurting you in the algorithm or whatever. It's like trying to appease one of the great old ones living beneath the sea. It's the modern Skinner box. If we do a little dance before we post the tweet, then it'll do better. If I bow eastwards and clap three times <laughs> and then turn Wittershins, <laughs> the posts will be successful. I hope you know I'm recording all of this. <laughs> I don't know how well the mic is picking it up. It's great though. This is good content. <laughs> I'm trying not to describe what we do as content anymore. It is content though. Like, I know, but like I, I get why people object to it, but they are they take it too far. I know this is unusual to say this, but some people on the internet who have a valid complaint are taking it too far. Well, and I you know, the degree to which what we do is art. Mm -hmm. I, I can understand people arguing about that. Like, mm -hmm. is, is entertainment content artistic? Right. Is, I mean, is, is creative art nonfiction art criticism? Yeah, exactly. Artistic, like... It's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of debates about what it is. I mean, it's definitely a podcast. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and it's definitely content. The reason I object to people objecting to content as a descriptor is the market forces that affect us. The way we interact with our audience, the way we interact with other artists, etc., etc., is like the same for us, basically, as it is for a YouTuber. Mm -hmm. We work in different mediums, we work on different websites, we produce a different product, but we're both content creators. The, the milieu, the industry, yeah. is the same. Yeah. We are self-managed, self-monetizing to the extent that like, if you have sponsorships, you generally have to go get them. Right. You know, we solicit patrons. We run a Patreon page. Right. Like. We don't have corporate backing. We don't have, like, proper training. We're not part of the legacy media establishment. We are content creators. And that doesn't degrade the work that we do. It reflects our, like, socio-economic relations with the world. It's more of a description creators. of the the way the work functions and the industry. I guess it's a little like saying when you talk about like blue collar work versus white collar work, that's an important distinction. Like those those do represent distinctly different experiences, um, different kinds of jobs, different kinds of environments, different kinds of companies, but they're still both workers. They're still both working class in the Marxist sense. They still are people who have to sell their labor to live. So a video creator, um, a movie maker who works on YouTube and a podcaster are different, but we're still part of the content creator class. Well, or even, you know, blanket descriptions like actor, 
there are tons of different types of acting a person might do or musician. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What instrument do you play? Do you play in an orchestra, a band? Do you record music? Do you like... Right. But then if you go over to your partner's house and their parents ask, what do you do? And you say, I'm a musician. They're going to look at you the same way. <laughs> Whether you're a concert pianist or a rock star. Well, depends on the parents. <laughs> but yeah, it's there are useful sort of categories that help describe what it is you do. I, I think the complaint about the use of the term content is much more relevant for people who do visual art mm -hmm. or musicians or people in more classically artistic fields. Mm. Um, because I, I think it reflects that pressure to be constantly producing or to make the act of producing in and of itself something you can share uh-huh because you have to be constantly sharing right in the new economy and you have to you have to be sharing not just what you actually produce but something of yourself you have to you have to be able to share some like behind the scenes things like conversations between you and your uh your creative partners that are not actually part of the music or the podcast or whatever it is you make, but are kind of related to them that you can add as like a bonus at the end. The point is we are very fun to talk to. We have and these conversations just like, this is a normal dinner time <laughs> <laughs> chat between Tom and I. Depending on who you are, probably sounds like the coolest thing or absolutely insufferable. And generally those are the two reactions we get from people, yes. <laughs>